Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. All right, Dan, it's time to hit this thing again. Uh, What's our topic today? Well, I feel very in control on this one, and I'm getting pretty confident. Today's topic is going to be illusions of control. In a previous episode, we'd talked a little about the illusion of control in relation to some other biases, and that seemed like an especially rich topic. So we thought we'd devote a whole episode to discussing this phenomenon as it takes place in our lives and in finance. This is really a, uh, a deep topic that plagues a lot of people. And what happens is we, uh, we talk about this a lot in, on this podcast, how the world is uh, full of a huge amount of variables and a lot of randomness. And the human brain has this tendency to try to make sense of all of this. And we can sometimes get overactive in how we do that. And we start to notice and perceive elements of data as they unfold and spin a story about it. And after a while, uh, if we start to focus on fitting that pattern too much, we can start to think we've got the whole thing figured out. And that is a very dangerous place to be because uh, you suffer from this illusion of control or illusion of invulnerability, which uh, is an inappropriate level of confidence given the set of circumstances you're dealing with in the world. Yeah, you often see this in a couple of instances. One, if a investor or manager has been on kind of a winning streak for a while, then they'll tend to think that the success that they're experiencing is an outcrop of their brilliance. And therefore, any decision that they make is likely to be successful. Right. And you see this in species of all sorts. So uh, the basal ganglia is one of these reinforcement learning regions of our brain deep within subcortical tissue. And it's a Nice input-output electrical circuit that has inhibitory and excitatory connections. And what the basal ganglia seems to do for us is uh, help us to forage. And so I can think of some fun experiments that have been done with rodents that have uh, very clear basal ganglia responses, and they can learn choice tasks pretty well. So if you have a simple two-choice task, press to the right, you're reinforced 40% of the time, press to the left 60% of the time. The rodent will learn this pretty quickly, and they always press the 60% lever and thereby get all of the rewards. You can do this with a human. Guess what happens? We try to find patterns, and so we will usually gravitate toward the 60% button more often, but we'll try out the 40% way too much, sort of cheating ourselves of rewards. The reason we do that is we have this very large, elaborate cortex that can form these networks and We can have conscious control of what we're doing, or at least we perceive that we have conscious control of something. And uh, we also know that there's some devious experimenter behind the uh, one-way mirror, and they are trying to uh, trick us. And that's the mindset that sometimes people get when they're in an experiment. Rodent probably doesn't have that same level of insight. So we can overthink the problem tremendously and find patterns in uh, essentially randomness. I've experienced this myself, and there's an instance that I'll mention in a bit. Often, the illusion of control tends to overtake folks when they do a tremendous amount of work on a particular topic, and they feel like they understand all of the various outcomes that can possibly happen, 
and that they have mastered that particular security. So they act with a lot more confidence than is really justified. And this gets pretty tricky because we, as humans, we respond to confident people quite well. So if uh, an analyst or an expert expresses an opinion with uh, a lot of certainty, we just respond to that. It's a very potent social cue for us, and we attend to it helplessly. We're just, if it's an emotional plea and a confident source, that just feels correct to us. If we're the person giving the confident opinion, you know, it feels good to, to be certain and definitive. We, we seem to seek that as a leadership trait. Maybe it has some value in uh, how groups work. We just gravitate toward the most confident person in the room, even though we may be noticing things that don't quite add up. An overconfident response can sometimes seem appealing. So it has this allure, which that's, therein lies the bias and the challenge in noticing it. We like being confident. We like others' confidence, but it actually should serve as a warning sign some of the time. Yeah, it's interesting that there are so many different, there's such a confluence of various biases that arise in conjunction with the illusion of control, such as consistency bias and confirmation bias. All three of these tend to be bundled together in a lot of different circumstances. Right. And confirmation bias is one we've done a previous podcast on. The confirmation bias is that tendency to begin to cherry pick the data, in a sense, to support the conclusion or the narrative that you're already entertaining. And what that means is you're systematically downgrading or ignoring inconsistent information. And that's the very information that you critically need to refine your viewpoint and and better understand it. And so this has that same feel. We do this in deductive reasoning where we neglect to find those counter-narrative data which are so critical to informing our, our situation. That's definitely the case. You know, it's funny, I'm recalling this uh, instance where I suffered from a bit of illusion of control. I'd done a tremendous amount of work on one particular security, and I found that there was just, just a fantastic opportunity the security was likely worth three times the price that it was trading at, and it was somewhat illiquid. Uh, we started buying it in our shop. The stock started rising. We noticed that we were not a huge percentage of the uh, volume, but uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of the volume. The stock just kept rising as we were adding to our position. So I started to suspect that others saw the value that I did, and we hastened our purchases. And so, of course, the stock went up ever more. The reality was is that there were some algorithms that uh, were basically keying off of our volume and just bidding the stock up in front of us. As soon as we turned off our buy program, because I, I suspected that could be the case, uh, once we had enough of a position that it was it was a decent size, the stock dropped pretty significantly afterwards. So I'd had this vision that we understood something that we knew to be true. I was afraid that others would figure it out and uh, that we would lose the opportunity. So you're outsmarted by robots that uh, didn't know as much as you did. So this has happened in, in lab cases as well. So behavioral scientists and brain scientists have studied these kind of cases where people are presented with random feedback. And there's a huge differential. Uh, going back to this idea that we like reinforcement, 
And we tend to neglect cases, the importance of cases where we aren't reinforced, meaning we're kind of seeking out the pattern in advance. There were some very clever experiments done in the uh, 1970s in which people would be presented with a, a button and a light bulb, and they could choose to press the button or not press the button, and they were waiting for, on each trial, the light bulb either illuminated or didn't. And basically, if the bulb illuminated a lot, people would rate their level of control over the outcomes to be pretty high. Interestingly, if the bulb failed to illuminate, they significantly dropped their level of perceived control. The punchline of this, the reality of it was they never had any control. It was completely random as to whether the bulb would illuminate or not. But we attend to that uh, sort of positive reinforcement And that has this overprivileged sense in leading our sense of control. So the takeaway message from that study is it keeps feeling good if it feels like we're accomplishing something and our our actions seem to be linked to the outcomes. And we can start to draw a false causal inference there that we have some insight or some additional knowledge that's uh, not really part of the situation. And uh, very simple, elegant sort of experiments show that our our learning systems, the gateway to our consciousness, can kind of distort things depending on what's really going on in the environment. Yeah, an interesting way to kind of really come to grips with this concept is to play some poker. Uh, It's often the case where we feel like we'll stay in a hand because, you know, we're the hero of our own story. We feel like we'll likely be successful uh, because the cards are going to fall in our favor. Cards really don't care who you are. It doesn't make a difference if who is holding the cards. It's a random distribution. So you don't want to go and assume that since it's you, you're more likely to have a better outcome than if it is someone else. Sometimes we just feel like uh, because we're participating, we're likely to be successful. Poker over time will dispel that illusion, and so will the inv- the stock market. Though poker is probably a cheaper way to learn that lesson. That's well put. So you, you definitely have to know when to fold. This is uh, relates back to another uh, instance of our mood can be affected very much. So uh, similar kinds of uh, reinforcement studies have been done with with people who tend toward depression. It turns out if you score higher on depressive symptoms and you do one of those uh, random data tasks like the light bulb button press task, turns out people who are more depressed are actually more accurate. And uh, I'm reminded of an old title, Sadder But Wiser, because it's as if the, uh, the sort of that more dampened mood kind of makes you more realistic. You don't undergo those emotional highs too much and get out of hand with it. And so uh, keeping some kind of an even temperament is really important here. If you start getting too euphoric, you, that's where you really run the risk of, of just becoming overly certain and overly optimistic. Uh, this bleeds into something we call the optimism bias, which uh, your poker example represents very nicely. We tend, on average, to think that circumstances are going to work out for the best uh, when they won't necessarily do that. And uh, that, that can be very, very tricky. I'm guilty of that all the time when it comes to the weather. Uh, whenever I go on a camping trip, I inevitably fail to pack uh, warm clothing because I, I assume 
naturally I'm involved there. It's not really going to rain. Um, you know, it's, and so you can sort of think yourself into some of these challenges. I guess the take home message on that's kind of murky though, because, uh, in, to enjoy your life, you need to be able to enjoy your victories. Um, but don't get out of hand with it, right? It's like, you've got to keep your emotions in check, certainly at the poker table or, uh, when you're going through your portfolio. Yeah. I think a good way to approach it is, approach your investing with humility. Know that you're often going to be wrong and you never want to be comfortable with the fact that you're wrong because, uh, you know, if you just embrace losing, that's not going to work out, but you have to understand that it's going to happen and take each unfortunate situation that unfolds and try to learn from it. There's not always a lesson there. Sometimes you're just on the wrong side of probability, but there's often an opportunity there to become even better at your craft. And one of the tricky biases that also plagues this situation or contributes to it is known as loss aversion. And this was discussed by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky years ago, uh, that losses hurt us more than equivalent gains feel good. And so there's that asymmetry where we really hate to lose. And that can drive another type of bias, which is to sort of not look critically at the uh, the possible failures. And so that unwillingness to sort of, I mean, it's a, it's a downer, right, to look at where things have gone wrong, but you kind of have to embrace that and sort of muscle through it. It doesn't feel good. It's not, we don't enjoy being wrong, but it's a way to try to counterbalance the oversized uh, psychological impact that losses tend to have for us. One way that you can mitigate the illusion of control is just have certain circuit breakers in your trading. So if you have a certain drawdown, you have a stop loss, uh, where you're only going to lose so much on any given position, then you can go and basically use that to override this overconfidence that you may have. So we've talked today about the illusion of control. It arises from some very uh, intuitive and instinctual brain systems that have to do with our foraging circuitry. There's an odd asymmetry between uh, the, the psychological impact of a loss versus a gain. Uh, we tend to act differently when we have streaks of wins in a row. And uh, it's important to keep that feeling in check and, and be realistic about it and also pay attention to cases of negative feedback. Uh, your critics can be your friends. Um, there's a lot of cliches about this. Um, so exerting some discipline, not getting carried away, and remembering that there's not maybe as much certainty as, as it feels as if there is on a regular basis. Yeah, in short, don't try to use the Jedi mind trick on your wife. <laughs> That's good advice. So we feel like we're very in control on this topic, but it may be an illusion. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dana George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.